Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, we are continuing our read-through of The Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Uh, we are deep into the second volume of this, this three-volume, eight-book series, uh, volume two called The Confusion. Uh, this volume swaps between two books, uh, chapter by chapter, um, those two books called The Junto and Bonanza. Um, so if you're just joining us, uh, I recommend you go back and uh, listen to my earlier episodes on this series to to follow along um, fully. Um, kind of where we left off is uh, we, we saw uh, Eliza complete her scheme to basically bankrupt uh, Lothar von Hackelhaber and his banking house, German banking house um, for revenge for essentially adopting her son who's posing as an orphan uh we've uh, at the same time we've seen um we watched jack shafto as he's kind of risen up in society through a scheme of his own that being the use of phosphorus to defeat maratha rebels on the road to delhi um basically for this he's going to get a position as a as a king in uh in india kind of a local king um and we we uh, get little uh, hints that the uh, Esfanians, uh, the Armenian comrade of Jack Shafto, part of the original cabal that did the major heist in Cairo, uh, might be up to something, something perhaps a little bit sinister. So, anyways, I guess that's a that's enough uh, background background, so we can jump into um, kind of a new part of the story. So. Uh, we, we pick up in 1694. Uh, in fact, the last 250 pages of this book cover almost 10 years, eight, eight years, I guess, of, of, of story. So it's, it's a pretty rushed section of the book. Um, and mostly this is getting our characters where they need to be. There's some really fun stuff throughout it, but especially in Jack's storyline. But it's kind of getting our characters to where they're going to be for the final for the, for the ball volume. It's really setting up the final three books of the series. So with Eliza, that's who we pick up with. We're still in the book five, the Junkto, at this point. Um, so Eliza is on her way to Germany. So she she do, really does take sort of a back, uh, you know, becomes a second tier character in a lot of ways in the second half of the series. Um, and I don't know if it's just that Stevenson didn't really know what to do with her or had already done everything he wanted to do with this character. She's still there important as a motivation for Jack. Um, her son, Johann Jean Jacques, becomes an important character later on in the story. She gets involved more in anti-slavery activities, so that's something they're able to play with. But And she's able to uh, connect more with... Uh, with different members of the this, the Hanoverians, specifically uh, uh, Princess Caroline of Brandenburg Osbach is is kind of the new character we're introduced to. Now, this is a real historical figure. She eventually married King George II of England, so she's part of that. She ends up being married into that Hanoverian line. Um, so, uh, so she's going to Saxony to to see them and to see her um, her mother Eleanor. Now, Eleanor is also a real character in, in history, the wife of the elector of uh, the elector of Saxony, right? So his name is Johann uh, 
John George, I guess. John George the Fourth. he would be. There's a series of these electors um, of Saxony with the same name. But anyways, that's, that's sort of the familial connections there. And, I mean, the main thing that happens here, I guess, is I, I like what Neil Stevenson does here is he takes a fictional character uh, in a major point in life and interacts with, with historical characters, but also interacts with historical events. So this, this, what happens here is not something that's made up, right? That basically this uh, Johann Georg, uh, John George, was this might be fictional i'm not sure but just kind of creeping on caroline like being a bit of a like kind of a pedophile and kind of gazing at caroline and having some kind of intentions towards her and he had a mistress right now the mistress and and uh johan georg died roughly with like a month of each other in 1694 both of smallpox right so what neil stevenson does is he just imagines that eliza gives them the smallpox. Eliza had had the smallpox and she basically has a threesome with them and gives both of them smallpox and they both die, yet Eliza survives. And she does this basically to protect Princess Caroline. There was also something with bigamy, like like when Eliza meets Eleanor, she's in the, the dowager's house, which normally would be the dower house. So normally would be where the actual, um, you know, widow of the elector would be staying. Um, but instead, she's she's there and he's still alive. So the reason is essentially he's become a bigamist, and so I don't know if it's a mistress or he's married. I think I think he's maybe married her by this point. Yeah, um, and and so that's another reason Eliza kind of works to knock him off. Um, so that's basically it. That's a fun little. Uh, a side connected to a real historical event, just imagining that they were assassinated by someone infected with smallpox to protect to protect Princess Caroline um, from his from his gaze, I guess. Now, after this, we get a letter around the same time uh, written by John Bart to Eliza, which is uh, basically all about the, the the kind of the consequences of her scheme to bankrupt the von Heckelhabers and just generally the poor state of currency in Europe at the time. Uh, and basically, um, you know, this is good for Jean Bart because Jean Bart is essentially a privateer. So he's able to, to play on the, the various flows of currency, but there, there seems to be just a, just a kind of a weakness in the, capital markets, I guess, and, and largely due to the poor state of the currency. Um, he writes, my services are much of demand of late as trade has stopped owing to some confusion in the world of money. I do not understand it at all. You, I am certain, understand it perfectly. In between my perfect ignorance and your perfect knowledge stands the rest of humanity, innumerable persons of greater or less dignity who fancy they understood it. Whatever the cause may be, these persons know your humble and obedient ser servant, Captain John Bart, is at present time the only person making money in France. Some small-minded pendants would assert that this is only by virtue of the fact that I steal things by force from the rightful owners. But this is a fine distinction I'll leave to the, the Jesuits. So that suggested that some of this bad state of currency is, is partially a byproduct of Eliza's own machinations uh, earlier. But anyways, um, and we see that he mentions also the, the house of Hackelhaber trying to get some of their money back, but, but failing to do that. 
So then uh, we, after this letter, we kind of pick up with the story of Eliza after she has basically recovered from the smallpox. And there's a nice little detail moment here where you see her putting the, like, the black patches on her face to cover up smallpox scars, which was a real thing because in those days, uh, most adults, you know, faced smallpox at some point in their life. And, you know, those little black spots that people pasted on their face was, was a way of covering up some of the more or ugly scars, I suppose. It was kind of a type of makeup for that. Um, anyways, this section uh, is set in Leipzig or it's set on the journey to Leipzig. And it basically focuses on the characters of Eliza and Princess uh, Carolyn as they're going on their way towards towards Leipzig. Um, it's also going to deal with uh, with uh, Lothar von Hackelhaber and her relationship his relationship with Eliza as it's evolved since the since her own like heist. Now I've noticed uh, Stevenson uses the epigraphs a little bit less in the confusion than he did in in Quicksilver. He kind of uses them when he wants. And I think they're even less in System of the World. But this one has a nice one. Again, from Daniel Defoe, The Plan of the English Commerce. You know, reading this book, I, you know, I keep, whenever I read this, uh, or both times I read this, I guess, I, I thought, I got to read this Daniel Defoe, The Plan of the English Commerce, because it looks so fascinating, right? It's this, I guess, early 17th century text, which is really talking about all the things this book is talking about in terms of commerce and money and, and things like that. But here's what he what he wrote, uh, quote, and why are we to despise commerce as a mechanism and the trading world as a mean when the world tr wealth of the world is deemed to arise from trade? Right now, this is, of course, you know, tied not just really to the story of Eliza, but actually to the story of what Daniel's talking about, like what Daniel's going through with the changing party politics in in England, where you really have two parties. Right. It's not like you have a pro-democratic and a more aristocratic party. You have two parties. One basically sees wealth in land and the other sees wealth essentially in trade, right? The Whigs see wealth in trade and therefore back the Bank of England and the Tories see wealth in land and so therefore back the, the land bank. Um, so Defoe here seems to be supporting the idea that, yeah, commerce is, is really where the wealth is. It's not in land itself. So anyways, um, Princess Caroline uh, and Eliza are in this cart on this journey to Leipzig. She's basically going to be studying under Leibniz um, as a bit of a tutor. And Eliza's taking on her old role as sort of a governess. But while her students at Versailles were kind of dim-witted aristocrats, uh, Caroline is a brewing natural philosopher in the making. I, I think she's characterized here as someone, if she would have been a man, would have been a not only a great leader, but someone who um, would have made real contributions to, to science and technology, at least in her political support of them, perhaps, right? Um, so anyway, she, she actually starts educating her Socratically and asking her questions and forcing Caroline to come up with answers of these things, basically training her uh, to be a natural philosopher, educating her on Leibniz's ideas, educating her on, on some of the politics and things like that, but mostly on on kind of the ideas of Leibniz who they're going to be meeting up with soon. So anyways, that's one theme here. And then we really have Eliza's reuniting with John Jacques, who now is going by the name of Johan. This again is her son with uh, Rosignol, who was put in an orphanage and then essentially just adopted by Lothar von Hackelhaber as revenge for 
the stealing, not that's it's not the bankrupting of him, but for, for her association with Jack, who stole the Solomonic gold earlier in the book. Um, but Johan's basically grown up uh, with Lothar and has come to really love him and be part of the family. And she really can't take him back. And, and she ends up meeting with Lothar himself. And Lothar makes a defense, right? That basically, you know, we're a family now. Quote, when an orphan being raised by strangers is brought to live with a family who loves them, does this even deserve the name of kidnapping? It seems rather like kidnapping's opposite. If you now announce that you are its mother, then I'm just supposed to believe that you, for there's a marked resemblance, but this is the first time you have admitted it, end quote. And so what's really hurting Eliza here is that she's never publicly admitted this child, right? Now, secretly, some people knew, right? The king knew, Rosignol obviously knew, you know, secretly, it was kind of known this was the bastard of Etienne d'Acachon, but not that many people publicly knew it. It was just sort of like a card she kept in her pocket for her defense at the time, and it helped her get out of that whole mess in in the Rhineland earlier in the story. Um, and, you know, Eliza's like, you can't really love, you only care about the Solomonic gold and alchemy, and then he tells his story about how his family was deeply entrenched in the search for the Solomonic gold. That this wasn't just a, a lifelong quest. This was a generations-long quest that was foiled by by Jack Shafto. But now he says, "I just want Jack. I or I just want Johan. I'm not interested in that. I don't even care about the money I lost or my firm. You know, it's 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 this family that he wants. So he's kind of turned over a leaf, I guess. Uh, and Eliza essentially ends up." forgiving him and they become friends surprisingly this isn't the most well i guess worked out part of the book they seem such bitter rivals that they, they kind of just have one conversation and suddenly she says okay i'll you know if i can be kind of quasi connected to johan you can keep him right and i said i just want to be part of his life and we'll be friends and i'll help you make back some maybe some of your money or whatever um but Who shows up in this scene? We get a nice little action scene here. Who shows up but Yevgeny the flail arm, right? I think it's here it's revealed that the flail arm guy we met earlier in the story who was fighting in the Battle of the Channel, of the channel it was actually Yevgeny, right? So Yevgeny has kind of sought out to assassinate Lothar as, you know, out of some kind of loyalty to Jack, it seems. Like, you know, all, like we learn later on that assassins have been constantly being sent to to India to knock off the cabal and particularly Jack Shafto uh, and Evgeny I guess is trying to target those people and and he's just kind of a free agent he's going to be in the final book too you know he doesn't really leave the story he's just a great character but with his flail arm he actually tries to assassinate uh, Lothar but he fails and Eliza stops him and Eliza tells him right like if you really are loyal to 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 me then you really should be tar targeting father edouard de jex um, she says if your loyalty is to jack then know that this man is no longer your enemy instead go to versailles and throw some harpoons at father edouard de jex and we kind of wrap up this part of eliza's story this section of the junto with uh, a letter from eliza to jean bart where she basically says Here's a plan where we can, you can repave, you should repave on Hackleheber, like uh, that house, the house of Hackleberry should be repaid that loan, that debt, that government debt they own should be paid back. Uh, 
And this will and what this would be good because it would repair France's finances, right? You can't just default on debts; you you need to pay them back. So, you know, kind of a modern concept of a of a national debt needing to be paid back for you know for the credit of the nation. She's like an early Hamilton here in making this argument, but it also works to kind of bail out Lothar and and make sure that her her son is going to have a a, a prosperous um, life. So that's it. So that, that kind of wraps up uh, this part of Eliza's story. So then we flip back to book four, uh, Bonanza. Um, and it's set three years after the last time we, we, we saw what Jack Shafter was doing, how he cleared the road to Delhi um, f- from Maratha bandits. And for this, we find out he gets uh, basically it becomes a king of a little province, an impoverished little province in the southern part of the Mughal Empire, like in southern India, basically kind of on the Malabar coast or something. And it's a really poor place. And Daniel Defoe again graces us with a quote, uh, with a quote from his A Plan of the English Commerce. Specifically, we say that some nations, the people are lazy, but we should say only that they are poor. Poverty is the foundation of all matters of idleness. End quote. Um, and of course, this is the poor section. And Jack Shafto at this point is he's kind of a king, but he's a poor king. Right? So it's it's a it's a really tiny kingdom, but Jack is going to make best use of it. Um, and we start out. He, he goes by the name Sorted Divine Fire, which is kind of a reference to his his experiments with the phosphorus that cleared the road to to Delhi and all that stuff. And he's starting out with his kind of tour of the of his little kingdom. Um, there's like this potato that has to be observed, and, and he has to talk to all his different like associates and allies. And some of the cabal are there too, um, just sort of hanging out. Um, but but it's a really tiny, poor kingdom. There's not that much to to um, say about it. Um, but know that Jack is doing something pretty exciting with his his time here he's not just wasting and he actually gets into these details a little bit later on i think talking to some other characters says like usually when you're a king you just let your prime minister local people handle the taxes and you stay in the capital and, and make nice with the king because after three years you'll lose that that commission and another person will be made king of that territory but if you're king likes you he'll extend it he'll expand it so he says most people just stay in delhi but i'm staying here and i'm actually going to be a hands-on king for a few years and who should show up to uh to this place but uh but enoch root and enoch root could carry some news of um of his like what news in Europe there is about Jack Shafto, how famous he is. Of course, Jack knows this because apparently assassins have been sent to him. Um, he gets news about Eliza um, and things like that. But really, the reason Enoch Root comes, he's going to kind of be like, a, you know how Gandalf kind of comes in and out of the Hobbit? It's kind of like Enoch Root sort of that way. He was gone for a long time and now he's going to be like helping hands-on, helping Jack Shafto for a while, and then he's going to come sort of vanish again. Um, and then show up later in the story. It kind of just comes and goes when he's needed. But 
he's bringing with him two young men, um, Jimmy and Danny Shafto, his two boys. Remember way back, you know, why he was doing all this stuff, why he was stealing the ostrich plumes and why he was fighting the Turks and why he was trying to to sell his horse Turk and all these things is to give his sons a, 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 an upbringing, right? But it's been years. It's, so they're grown up now. And they were a bit resentful of Jack Shafto for essentially abandoning them on, the, on his little adventures. And they, they beat him up or they, they punch him. And, and Jack's like, okay, fine. You got your punches in. I deserve it. You know, and it's a pity you became Irish because his mom was Irish. So they're kind of raised as Irish Catholics. And this is something that annoys Jack too. But he is sort of happy that they've come. Uh, to help him out and he shows them around this kingdom that they'll never inherit and he has a little bit of fun with uh, with that and he goes over he reviews for them the finances of it how agriculture kind of pays the taxes right but he can do other things so he is using profit from other kind of trading expeditions that Surrendernat is engaged in to pay wages to Indian locals to cut down teak and to prepare lumber for a teak ship that he's preparing with, it's revealed later on, with the investment of this pirate queen of, of Malabar, uh, Kotaka, who had originally stolen the, the Solomonic gold, right? So the Solomonic gold's still floating around. It's still in the ballpark of where they're at. It's just under the control of this pirate queen. But, you know, eventually Jack, I think at this point he's just making it, but eventually he'll talk the queen into fully investing in the in this trading expedition because then she'd get a piece of, of whatever profit the ship makes um, but he's building this teak ship so i guess I, I i reckon most ships aren't made from teak i think it was a pretty even at the time it was a pretty rare expensive hardwood that only grew in certain areas but it grew right in jack's kingdom right so he was able to get all the supplies he needed to get the lumber to make a teak ship they even bring in and this is Van Hoek helped do this. Van Hoek's still around. Most of the cabal is still floating around adjacent to, to Jack here. Because it's all part of a longer scheme they have to get back to Europe or to, to make some profit. But he, you know, Van Hoek's able to connect with like a Dutch uh, shipwright who draws up designs for a Dutch style uh, merchant ship, right? Now, but of course, Jack also wants to make it a pirate hunter and a pirate killer or at least something that can defend against pirates. Now, this ship is ultimately, spoiler alert, it's going to be the Minerva, the ship we met very early in the story, obviously because it's commanded by Van Hook. It's it's not a big surprise to any any readers that that's what's being done here. But it's, it's cool he's using Teak, and this ship's going to have other kind of special components, as we'll see later on. Um, so, again, Jack takes his sons and Enoch root around and shows them his whole operation he has, including all of the talking about all the Dutch innovations and shipbuilding and things like that. Now they're also preparing uh, trade goods and specifically it's going to be that that uh, Damascus steel, which remember Jack's sword, his Janissary sword was Damascus steel. You know, apparently there was this smith in India who knew how to make this. So they also had kind of a little factory process creating uh, this Damascus steel. Now, what I want to say about all of this is you have Jack, who remembers just a vagabond, right? Illiterate at this point. He must have picked up reading at some point later on in the story. But that's, in, I think, in the time gap between volumes two and three. You have, you have Jack here in this 
backwater part of India, creating really the foundations of not just capital, not just commercial capitalism, but industrial capitalism, right? Mass producing commodities, you know, building uh, the ships that are going to carry the goods, right? Hiring wage labor, right? Using the capital he's built up to hire wage laborers to to create uh, the commodities that's going to to fuel uh, the world, uh, the world trade. Um, now you get to start reading book volume three, Solomon, starting with Solomon's Gold, and you'll you'll be introduced to like Thomas Newcomen, who of course builds the steam engine. And a lot of people say, well, that's really the start of the industrial age, right, with the steam engine and all that. But you know, Jack's prefiguring that by by twenty years or so in India, and I, and I think it's. If you just read the Jack's part of the story is for fun, maybe not as thematically important, you might miss that. That you really have Jack in kind of inventing a type of industrial capitalism. Not because he knew how to. You know, it's not the first time. It was the same with the production of the phosphorus. But here it's even on a larger scale. And I think you can't underestimate just how brilliant Jack Shafto is. I mean, he really is a... He, he's like an Isaac Newton level character or a Leibniz level character. It's just he doesn't have the fame and fortune and name recognition and, and literacy and things like that that allowed those people to become great natural philosophers. Jack, you know, he was a mudlark when he was a kid and he could do nothing but be a soldier. But anyways, that's I think there's some that's some of the politics of this book, right? Same thing with the, like the Eliza storyline. The Eliza and Jack storylines really show how you know, brilliance is dispersed throughout the population pretty broadly. And it's not just the people whose name we recognize that had this this brilliance. It's the old line about how many Mozarts are like working at a McDonald's right now or, you know, not able to put their, their talents to work. All right, then. So uh, next we have a... They go to the they go to Malabar, so they're they're going to go recruit uh, after the ship is done, um, after the ship's completed. It's later in 1696 after his, essentially his commission as king, ends. He's they're heading down to the Malabar coast because they want to recruit the uh, this this Malabar pirate queen um, into you know. To, to hire their cabal or to work with their cabal, to invest in their cabal as a, as a trading expedition. Um, so that's what's going on. They're going to see this queen. Uh, what, during the story, we finally get the backstory of Gabriel Gotha. Remember, he was this Jesuit from Japan who's also sort of a samurai. And um, he gives a pretty long narration about basically the Tokugawa shogunate and the and the relationship between the Tokugawa shogunate and foreigners, particularly foreign learning, so-called Dutch learning, and then more specifically even Christianity, right? And Nagasaki was like that one bastion where foreign learning was was welcome because those daimyos, which are like the local aristocrats in J Japan, um, those locals, you know, domain leaders, uh, they. You know, the ones in the south in Nagasaki were more, were, you know, stayed more open. But the rest of Japan was pretty closed off during the Tokugawa period, right? So there's a lot of things. If you took your Japanese history, if you remember your Japanese history, it's not going to be that surprising here. A lot of it's just drawn from like a history textbook 
it seems to me. But of course, you have the high number of samurais in Tokugawa, Japan. Why? It's because there was a century of civil war prior to this. And a lot of local leaders who were contending for power uplifted a lot of commoners into samurai because that was, the, you know, you had to be a samurai to carry a sword. So that's how they got your armies, right? Um, but then after the Tokugawa shogunate ended, you had this militarized or after the Tokugawa Shogunate began, you had this militarized countryside, right? So it started actually Toyotomi Hideyoshi started to uh, try to get some of the guns off the land, was the swords off the land, but it didn't work. And you ended up with like 10% or up to 20% of the population being the samurai class, right? So what the Tokugawa Shogunate eventually does is bureaucratizes this class. It's very similar to the Versailles treatment right where they had to spend half the year in Edo half the year in their old domain I think sometimes their families had to stay in Edo year-round as kind of hostages and a lot of samurai were given jobs just as like bureaucrats for the state right tax collectors or or whatever kind of functionaries for for the state so the swords get sort of rusty right in their in their sheath but they still had to carry them because it was still a sign of being a samurai Right now, what does any of this have to do with Gabriel Goto? Well, Gabriel Goto, you know, was also part of this, you know, became a Christian. And so for that, when Christianity was repressed in Japan, he got exiled along with his family. So he has the samurai background, but he also became this Jesuit. So he's got a really wonderful story here. A lot of it just kind of brings us up to date on Japanese history if of this period, um, you know, it's like one of the few parts of the world we don't get some taste of. Uh, I guess the w one part we don't is China. I guess China, even though there's a lot of talk about China as being the destination of silver, not much talk about uh, China in these years. It is a, a period of, of, of civil war in China too, right? You have the new Qing dynasty in 1644, and it took a couple generations for all the Ming loyalists to finally be suppressed and for you know f the the borders of the Qing Empire as we understand them today to be fully formed it took really until the end of the 18th century to achieve all that so I don't for whatever reason Neil Stevenson didn't want to talk about them but he talks about Japan which isn't surprising because of course Jap Japan plays a major role in cryptonomicon right of course here it's called Nippon which is just in cryptonomicon it's also called Nippon so I, I really like Gabriel Goto's story, though, because if for no reason, it, it kind of allows us to to reflect on and remember some of our old Japanese history. It's really a great period of Japanese history to study because not only do you have war and a lot of drama, political drama, you have the question of how, like, how do you make a state on these feudal foundations? How do you make a centralized state on feudal foundations? And many scholars, when they ask the question, why did Japan industrialize so quickly and China struggle to industrialize? You know, people look at culture or, or political systems or whatever. But, you know, one answer is that Japan sort of had, you know, each of these domains intimately connected to Edo through trade. Or you already had like their own manufacturing centers and all these different domains. Edo was the center. And because samurai and daimyo had to spend, well, the daimyo had to spend half the year there. They all had castles in their domains and in Edo. So Edo became the center of a national market. Um, we had good roads for all this commerce and moving people back and forth. And these samurais weren't fighting wars, so they became consumers, right? So whether it was sake or, or samurai swords or, you know, tea, tea for tea ceremonies or whatever, it's, it became very commercial, right? 
It's also an exciting period in art history. So it's a wonderful period of history to, to look into if you haven't yet. I, I certainly recommend reading some, some Japanese history um, if, this, if this part of the story piques, you, piques your interest anyways. Um, all right. Um, next we have the trial by crocodile. So they basically bring their plan up to the queen, this pirate queen of Malabar. Uh, and, and she says, okay, but I don't really trust you. So you're going to have to go through the trial by crocodile. And then Dapa, who's basically the catch-all translator because he's the linguist, he translates for Jack saying, well, she's basically saying, well, he says something about along the lines of, you know, judicial systems are not really well developed here, right? This is about as fair a trial as you're going to get, which basically involves him, Jack, having to uh, navigate his way through crocodile-infested waters to get to the ship with with uh, the queen on it uh, and get to that mast and uh and then jack's if they don't do this they'll be enslaved and jack has a wonderful moment here where he thinks you know if i don't do this and everyone i know is enslaved right how will i be remembered right and i'm doing it here my sons are here they don't respect me that much anymore. So how can I, you know, it basically becomes a defining moment for Jack. Here's how it's, it's written. Like everything that had happened since he had been born at, at, in that moment, all of this Jack understood well enough. His only difficulty just now was that the said imp had not followed him out as far as Malabar, or if it had, it had been waylaid by pirates and was now chained up in some dusty stand, being put to work, getting ragheads to do rash and imprudent things. At any rate, the imp was absent, and Jack, who at earlier times in his life, would have dived without hesitation into the river, was strangely fixed on a spot, as if it were an old banyan tree that had sunk a million roots into the earth. There are so many things to be said in favor of not attempting to swim through crocodiles that I simply could not move. His comrades sat meekly in the queen's boat, staring at him. Jack loved certain of these men as well as he'd loved anyone, not counting Eliza. But various experiences of war, mutilation, slavery, and vagabonding had made him into a hard man. He knew perfectly well that any galley chosen at random from the Mediterranean would contain a complement of slaves, every bit as deserving of freedom as Van Hook, Moza, and the others, and none of them would ever be free. So why swim through crocodile-infested waters for them? These sons were on his... His sons were on the boat. Jimmy and Danny were not looking at him. They were affecting boredom, convinced he would fail them as always. Enoch was on the boat too. One day Enoch would escape from Malabar. It might take a hundred years, but Enoch would escape and return to Christendom and spread the tale of how Jack Shafto had lost his nerve in the end and consequently spent his last years at a, as a hermaphrodite butt slave in a heathen pagoda. Jack notices it from a distance that he was sprinting down the riverbank. Uh, so the imp of the perverse uh, had some life in it after all. And he goes through the trial by crocodile. It's just a couple of pages, but it's a lot of fun where he has these chickens and he ties a chicken to kind of like a fishing lure and uses them to kind of, he kind of snags a crocodile that bites the chicken, uh, you know, various other kinds of, of little Indiana Jones style tricks to get through the crocodiles uh, to the queen's boat. So with the success of the trial by crocodile, uh, Jax now has this investor in the queen and the very, the, how far that goes will be revealed, I think later on. Um, but the time comes to Christian the ship 
And Jack says, I'm going to christen it Eliza. And Enoch Root says, don't name it after her, because if word gets back that you named the ship after Eliza, that could be hard for her. So instead he names her after kind of, um, he says, what do these three ladies, uh, Electra, Sophie, Eliza, and Queen Kotakal have in common? And that is wisdom. So he names the ship Minerva. Um, and that ends uh, this uh, section of, of Bonanza. All right, then. So then we jump back to the Junkto, book five. And here, I think we're dealing mostly with um, Leibniz and Daniel. Yeah. A few other things. Maybe a little bit on, on Eliza. I think da Daniel's really our focus here. It's set in February 1696, so around the same time that this trial by crocodile stuff is going on while that ship is being prepared to depart, um, we return to, to London and, and reconnect with Daniel. Now remember Daniel's, you know, he had has recruited uh, Isaac for the mint. And for this, um, the Marquis of Ravenscar has promised Daniel a sinecure in Massachusetts, but he apparently hasn't gotten there yet, even though it's been like three, four years. Uh, he keeps saying he's going to make it to Massachusetts, but he eventually will, obviously. Um, after one final, I guess, visit to to Leibniz in, in, on the continent. So uh, we start out, we're on the Thames. Uh, it's another one of these Roger and Daniel sitting around drinking coffee kind of scenes. And this is where I think Roger talks him into like one last visit to, to see uh, to see to see Leibniz. Uh, Roger says this, Isaac will be sworn in the mint in the beginning of May. It is now February. How shall we occupy ourselves between now and then? Your intention is to carry forward that Comenius, Wilkins, Leibniz, Pan-Sophic, Arithmetic, Engine, Logic Mill, Algebra, Raticonation, Automatic Computation, Repository of All Knowledge Project, is it not? We have a better name for it, Daniel conceded, but you know perfectly well the answer is yes. And then he says, maybe you need to talk to Leibniz before you commit the rest of your life to this. So he sends, uh, he basically sends Daniel on one last mission before saying you can finally go to Massachusetts. You get the sense Roger sort of keep, you know, say, oh, you can go to Massachusetts when you do this one thing. After this, you can go. And, you know, finally he lets him go, but only after making sure he goes through all of these, these steps. So Daniel's like, well, there's a war going on. I'm not going to the continent. And Rogers tells us something, you know, this is still the Nine Years' War, the War of the League of Augsburg. Roger basically says, the war is essentially over, right? There's not going to be any more fighting. It's just a, a matter of working out the truce, right? Remember, these are long, drawn-out affairs. Europe may have been constantly at war throughout all the early modern period, but it wasn't that, it wasn't like World War II-style war right they campaigned only certain times of the year a lot of it was camping out there'd be a siege and they would you know sit in one place it took a long time for armies to move so it wasn't constant fighting with millions of soldiers right so even though they're officially at war there wasn't that much action going on and so it was perfectly safe for daniel to go to france and cross over to germany They also talk a little bit. I think this is also maybe Roger's uh, intention in sending Daniel to see Leibniz once again. is because he knows Leibniz's connection to Sophie is 
the Whigs at this point um, would much prefer to see the the Hanoverian lines on the throne, right? Because she's more naturally Whiggish than the alternative, which would be a Jacobite secession of some sort in the future. So after that, we follow Daniel to the continent. He's on Dun in Dunkirk uh, a month later in March 1696. And he meets up with Eliza uh, while there. Now, there's a lot that they have to talk about. Um, they talk about her relationship with Hackelhaber, Johan. They talk about this. And she has this long story about this assassination of Edouard de um, de Jacques, this Jesuit, right, who's connected to uh, Madame Olignot, that um, poisoner, and uh, the person that Eliza sent Yevgeny to me to, to target as this is the real enemy of, of Jack Shafto here in Europe, not von Heckelhaber. And so she tells the story about how Yevgeny assassinates de Jacques. Quote, the details are unclear. Suffice it to say that it, the flunked head of the weapon had to be excavated by the king's surgeon from deep in De Jack's upper thigh. It passed through the muscle on the outside of the limb and spared the great vessels and nerves that run along the inside. But the bone was damaged and infection developed and De Jack's has ever since lingered at death's door in a sick room in the chapter house of the Jesuits in the town of Versailles. Um, the attacker is obviously um, Yevgeny. Now, the other thing they talk about is... Um, like, like, remember both Daniel and Eliza promised Bob Shafto that he would help on Abigail. And remember, Eliza was kind of cold about that. And there's not that much Daniel could do, right? His real alliance that night during the Glorious Revolution was between him and John Churchill, the, the alchemy pact, right, that was created. But they do talk about Abigail and they talk about Bob Shafto and... and his kind of debt he owes to 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 um, to Bob Shafto, and then they talk about money, and uh, the whole issue of the competing banks. Right, you got the Bank of England backed by currency, and the land bank banked by money, and how at the time the land bank seemed to be selling for a higher rate. So Eliza buys a bunch of land uh, bills, land bank bills, um, or she orders Daniel to have it done or whatever. She buys a bunch of those and then immediately sells them for uh, a larger quantity of, of Bank of England bills. So essentially what she's doing here is she's sort of betting on commerce, right? Um, and there's a really fun moment where they talk about derivatives because derivatives is a a concept in calculus it's a mathematical concept but uh, Eliza's using it as a as a financial one he says um oh yeah so Eliza says I put my trust in Newton that's why I'm going to buy the Bank of England because once Newton can correct the the currency of England then that's going to uh develop that's going to have good commerce as a result of that the good money is going to push out the old and all that. And he says, you refer to his position at the mint. And she says, I had more in mind the calculus. And she's, and um, he says, how so? And she says, this, this is really a matter of derivatives, is it not? And he says, financial derivatives? And she says, no, mathematical ones. For any quantity, say position, there's a derivative represented as rate of change. As I see it, England's stock of land represents a fixed quantity of wealth. But commerce, I see as a derivative. It is a slope. 
the speed, the rate of change of the nation's wealth. When commerce stagnates, the rate of change is small and money founded upon is worthless. Hence the lopsided exchange rate you told me of. But when commerce thrives, all goes into rapid movement. The derivative jumps up and money founded on it becomes a much greater value. Once Newton gets to work on the mint, a supply of coin in England can only improve. Commerce, which has been frozen for lack of money, will surge, at least briefly. The exchange rate between these two currencies will swing the opposite way long enough for me to at least take a profit. Um, anyways, that's, that's the end of their meeting. Now we flip. This is really weird because usually in these, we, we hang out with one character for a while, right? But now we jump immediately to an abandoned church in France, March 1996, 1696. Same time that this conversation in Dunkirk is taking place. And um, Duchess of Elion, this weird poisoner and Satanist, uh, is there as Dejex wakes up. So Dejex was kind of presumed dead but he wakes up here. And it's really ambiguous. Is this science fiction? Is this fantasy? Is this magic? Is this alchemical or Satanist magic taking place? Or did he was he just dying and didn't die, but wakes up and thinks he had died? She's ambiguous about it. And Dejek sort of asks about this because she's like, if I was brought back to life through satanic magic or something, then my soul is damned. Yeah, so she's kind of cagey about what the process was. So I, I guess we as readers can sort of imagine that he was brought back from the dead through a Satanist worship, you know, ritual. Um, but it's a great moment. It's this, uh, you know, to see him kind of rise from the dead. But whatever the way she's able to, do, however she was able to do this, she basically enlists him as her her thrall, her slave. She says, you're now going to go as the name Edmond As, a name you got to remember. Right? So don't forget that name. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Uh, a Belgian Jansenit. So a Jansenit is like a French, I think I think there were French Christians who sort of adopt, they weren't Huguenots, they weren't full Protestants, but they adopted some Protestant theology into it. So they're sort of dissenters within the broader Catholic tradition, but they were seen as heretics by groups like the Jesuits and I think the French crown as well. Um, I remember these guys came up in my series on the, the history of New France, um, the, the Parkman series, if you remember that, if you've been listening this long. The Jansenists were a major place in, in New France. But he says, okay, you're, you're now this and you're going to travel around the world, right, as my thrall, searching for the Solomon of gold, presumably. Says, put on, put these on. She says, shave your beard, and the transformation is complete. You can go on your quest to the east, a new man. I'm sure the Jansenites in Goa, Macau, Manila will be glad of your company. So next, we flip to a whole other character at the same time. So all these things are happening at the same time. Daniel, Dejek's waking up. Daniel and Eliza in, in Dunkirk. Uh, Dejek's waking up and being essentially enslaved by the Satanist. And uh, we see Bob Shafto. Uh, in also on the continent near Namur. And this is a really fun section because he's, he's got a new commander. It's, it seems, uh, was it John Churchill was thought to be like a Tory or something or something, put in jail. He was put in the Tower of London. So Bob Shafter has another commander now. And this is at the end of the war. Remember, you know, the war is kind of dying down, but troops are still in the field occupying territories. 
and you know people are deserting and the commander's kind of doesn't really care i think actually bob approaches him about the desertion of of J jimmy and dan shafto who were taken off by enoch root and never came back and he's like oh that's fine it's a good training exercise and bob asks why do you keep talking about training exercises when people are running off or hunting or whatever and he says well because as soon as the war ends which it will soon this army is going to disband and all of these soldiers are going to become vagabonds right and they're going to have to learn to live off the land and survive until the next war until they can be soldiers again so he's not he's not going to like punish them unless he has to for desertion or things like that he, he sees it more as just preparing them for a life on the road that's certainly going to come now this certainly was an issue in this early modern period we had constant war right is because you didn't have a gi bill for these people or something there was when the war ended like with the navy during war the british navy expanded its size significantly and then when war ended what what do these people do well they, well, they often would go up pirating right or join up with pri privateer crews and when the privateers no longer have the commission to to seek out like spanish or french or dutch shipping or whatever they would just target everyone and become pirates so you actually see peaks in banditry and piracy when there's not a war because all these soldiers have to disperse so it's a wonderful detail he adds here about this but they're kind of just sitting around and and then they end up talking about abigail a little bit and and i, I think where did he get the news from did he get the news from Dan? i think he got it maybe from um from Waterhouse or someone like that, but maybe from Eliza that where Abigail is. I think maybe Eliza figured out where Abigail is, told Bob that. And it turns out it's like five miles down the road from them, just on the other side of the front. And the commander, whose name is Barnes, um, someone else I guess we'll meet later now to think of it. But uh, he says, we have a wonderful training exercise. We're going we're gonna to liberate Abigail. We're going to go behind enemy lines and steal Abigail away. So that's uh that's coming up so um then we f flip to a, a long section w with daniel and leibniz traveling to berlin and they're with it's, it's, it says the the title here is daniel and leibniz escort an, an orphan to berlin it's caroline caroline's the orphan right she her um eleanor i think died and her 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 father died right of smallpox and this is a conversation about like daniel's plans in massachusetts about natural philosophy about um the things leibniz is sort of working on specifically monads monadology right is the the main topic of conversation and through this all these sort of tutor caroline and again caroline is presented as this very precocious brilliant young uh, young woman who could have been a natural philosopher if if she had just been born with a penis right but they talk about gravity free will and all the things that are really the the substance of the leibniz newton philosophical debate right it's not just a debate over who invented the calculus first right it's a much deeper philosophical connection um so so daniel i think sort of sums this up he says to caroline just so you instead would see him melting things in crucibles or dissolving them in acids. What do such things have to do with atoms? The answer is that Newton, unable to see atoms with even the finest microscope, has said, 
If my notion of atoms is correct, then such and such ought to happen when I drop a pinch of this into a beaker of that. He gives it a go and sees neither success nor failure, but something other that he did not anticipate. Then he goes off and broods over it and rejiggers his notion of atoms and devises a new experimentum crucius and reiterates. Likewise, if your highness were to visit Massachusetts and see me at work at my institute, you'd not see any monads lying around on any countertops. Rather, you'd see me toiling over machines that are to thinking what beakers, retorts, and etc. are atoms. Machines that, like monads, apply simple rules to information that is supplied to them from without. So now this again, this connection between Leibniz's monadology and his kind of logic and this idea of a logic mill is all like something Neil Stevenson really wants to emphasize here is that he wants to see him really as the father of, 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 of like these kind of digital technologies, right? Of information science and of, of the computer really to, to put it bluntly, the father of the computer. All right, we're almost done here. Uh, I picked kind of a long section for today just so we can uh, finish up the confusion in six episodes. Um, so then we, so the next ep section is the the rescuing of Abigail from uh, Barnes and Shafto rescuer. They get married. That's all I'm going to say about it. But it's it's a nice moment. It, it doesn't quite wrap up Bob's character. Bob does show up in the third book, um, but. In many ways, it wraps up Bob's character in a way that Eliza's story is starting to sort of be wrapped up. I mean, she's still going to be there, but she's going to be there as sort of a, you know, as, as someone who drives Jack on. What she actually does is less important. The same thing with Bob. Bob's just sort of going to be in the backdrop. The final book, the final volume, I should say, the, the final three books of the series, it's really like Daniel and Jack and Isaac, Newton and Leibniz right there are various intertwined conflicts and the people kind of get dragged along with them so the final section i want to talk about today is is uh in uh, hanover where you have leibniz sophie talking and sophie's basically bitching out uh leibniz for not doing his job she says you know you've been your silver thing failed yeah you got the genealogy stuff worked out, but I'm still not queen of England and I'm probably going to die before I am. And you have these grandiose plans for like a logic engine and a, and a, and a library that would require infinite amount of funds just because he wants to go on per perpetuity. And he's like, I'm not, she's like, I'm not made of money. You know, you're becoming a big drain on me and I'm not getting anything that I wanted out of this relationship. And she try, he tries to explain to her the value of what he's doing and his monadology and all this. Um, but it's pretty clear he's going to have to find a secondary sponsor of some sort. And who shows up? But the tall, who's the tall Russian? Of course, it's Peter the Great. Peter the Great did go sort of in disguise. You know, he did travel to Western Europe, to the Netherlands and places like that in Germany to, to see shipbuilding and modern technologies and, and modern statecrafts and all these kinds of things and bring that knowledge back to to Russia. So this is the beginning of a relationship between Leibniz and, and Peter the Great, um, which will be played out later on in the story um, to a degree. So I guess that's it. That's a huge section of the book. 
Um, but a lot of good stuff here. Again, I think, you know, the confusion really starts to become a book that's setting up people where they need to be. Daniel needs to be in, in, in Massachusetts, you know, Jack has to be back in Europe at some point. We'll see how he gets there in the next book. Uh, Dejex and, and Jack have to be somehow connected. So we send Dejex on a tour around the world so he can meet up with Jack at some point. A lot of it is just setting up these characters where they need to be for the for the final acts of the of the story. Because the whole final volume of the of the series takes place over like one year, you know, and we see in the Confucian it's it's like fifteen years of, of story. So it's a very different type of book, but it, a lot of it's contingent on, on where people are and what their motivations are at, at, at that in seventeen fourteen when that book takes place. So I guess that's going to be it for now. I'll uh, finish up my thoughts on The Confusion in one final episode um, before moving on to The System of the World, the third volume. So anyways, let me know any of your thoughts about this part of the book. A lot of fun stuff in this section of the book. You know, got the trial by crocodile. You got Jack's kingdom in, in, in India. You got Eliza knocking off a couple of aristocrats with smallpox. You got Dejects Rising from the Dead. Wonderful stuff in this book, in this section of the book. Um, Bob's heist to steal back his girlfriend. It's all good stuff. Um, but, you know, if there were any themes or ideas or concepts that I brushed over, I apologize. But do share with me your thoughts about this. Uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>